Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash bestmusic to get Live One Plus now. Okay, so presents. Check. Decorations. Uh, check. Christmas clothes. Yep, check. The turkey. You forgot the turkey. Dunn Stores has extended opening hours over the Christmas season, so you'll have plenty of time to get all those little jobs done. Opening times may vary. Check your Dunn Stores app or dunnstores.com for more info. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. June 11, 1986, started out as a typical morning for the Snow family who lived in Auburn, Washington. Auburn is a small town nestled between the cities of Seattle and Tacoma, just west of the Cascade Mountains. With a grand view of Mount Rainier, the town attracts people who work for aerospace engineers Boeing and the nearby Muckleshoot Tribal Enterprises. Forty-year-old Sue Snow was a bank manager and she was getting ready for a day at work while her 15-year-old daughter Haley was getting ready for school. Sue had woken up with a headache, so she popped two Excedrin capsules and got into the shower. A few minutes later, Haley heard a thump and when she went to her mother's bathroom to investigate, she found Sue on the floor, eyes glazed over, with barely a pulse. She called 911, and Sue was rushed to Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, but she later died without ever regaining consciousness. When the local news announced the death was related to a tainted bottle of Excedrin, a local woman came forward to tell police that her husband had recently died, and despite the medical examiner determining the death to be from natural causes, she explained that he had recently taken some Excedrin and she wanted authorities to reopen the case. Sure enough, when they dug into the case, they found that her husband had in fact died from ingesting tainted Excedrin. But unlike the similar case of tainted Tylenol in Chicago four years earlier, investigators would quickly discover who was responsible for the deaths. This is Monsters. Stella Stevenson was born on August 7, 1943, in Colton, Oregon. She was the fifth child of George and Joe Stevenson. George worked in the timber industry and was a hard drinker, usually having to be dragged out of the local tavern by Joe. Stella was too young to remember when George and Joe got into a fight, which ended up with George firing a couple of shots from his shotgun at his wife and children. 
Though nobody was injured, it was the final straw for Joe, and she divorced George. Needing to support her children, she became the only woman to work in a sawmill until she was offered a position as an assistant to a logging truck driver named Culver Kelly, who went by Dewey. It wasn't long before Dewey and Joe were married. They eventually moved to LaConnor, Washington, and the Kellys had their first and only child together. Joe's marriage to Dewey wasn't any better than the one she had with George, so when he announced that he was going to Alaska to, quote, make some real money, Joe sent him off without her. Joe divorced him soon after he left, and the family struggled to get by on welfare. In 1955, Joe's oldest son joined the military, and Joe moved her and the rest of her children to a motel in Seattle and began working as a waitress. Her tips were enough to get her out of the motel and into a house nearby. During this time, Stella grew up to be known as the wild child amongst her siblings. At only 13 years old, she began dating 17-year-old Ricky Slauson. Joe liked Ricky and didn't mind Stella spending her time with him, but when she was 15, Stella became pregnant. Now, Stella told her mother that she had been raped by two other boys and one of them was the father, but she didn't want to have anything to do with them, for obvious reasons. It's unclear if Ricky was tricked or if he was in on the charade, but he told people that the baby was his. Stella's first child, Cynthia, who went by Cindy, was born on October 23, 1959, and by that time, Joe was married to her third husband. It was at this time that Joe also discovered that her birth name was not Alva Georgia like she had believed, giving her the nickname Joe, but was actually Cora Lee, and she began going by Cora. She and her new husband, Bill Street, had moved to Southern California, and she was able to convince Stella to move down there with the baby and live with them. Ricky said he would come to California and marry her, but instead he sent a letter claiming he was going to take custody of Cindy because she was an unfit mother. He was under the impression that, because the child shared his last name, that he would be granted custody. Stella was not someone to threaten, and she made it clear in her response. She wrote, quote, Go ahead and try to prove I'm an unfit mother. Try to take my daughter away from me and I'll see you behind bars for 20 long years because I'll nail you for statutory rape because I was only 15 years old when we started getting together and I turned 16 a couple months before Cindy was born. Stella never heard from Ricky again. While in California, Cora offered to take care of Cindy so Stella could finish out her teenage years having fun. Stella took full advantage of the offer and left Cindy with her mother whenever she could. She spent her evenings with a slew of older men, and in 1962, she got pregnant again. This time, Cora was able to convince Stella to put the baby up for adoption as the father was not really interested in marriage, and Stella wasn't ready for a second child. Stella was also still hoping to find a husband, and that would be hard enough as the unwed mother of one child, but add a second child from a different man, and it would be nearly impossible. I mean, it was the 60s. Stella eventually caught the eye of Korean War veteran Robert Strong, who went by Bob. Bob and Stella were married on June 3, 1964, and moved into a house in Santa Ana. Bob worked in construction, and Stella stayed at home with the children at least when she wasn't out cheating on Bob. Bob didn't want to stir the pot, and despite knowing that his wife was stepping out, he looked the other way. 
After their daughter Leia was born on November 4, 1966, Stella took her dishonesty up a level. In 1970, Stella had a cousin that needed a place to live. She offered to let her and her family stay with them, and they started the process of transferring her welfare checks to Stella's house in Santa Ana, but they eventually changed their plans and moved to Texas where her husband was able to find work. They assured Stella that the transfer of their welfare never went through, but soon after, checks began being delivered to her house anyway. Bob told Stella to send them back, but she didn't listen. She found someone to forge her cousin's husband's name and started cashing the $119.50 checks. When Stella's cousin visited nine months later, she learned about the fraud and turned her cousin in. Stella was convicted of one count of forgery and sentenced to six months in jail. Stella's mother, Cora, stayed at their house and helped take care of the kids until she was released. Bob visited Stella every day and brought the girls to see her every Saturday. It seemed like something a dedicated husband would do, but the truth was that Bob was losing interest in the relationship. Bob began seeing a neighbor while Stella was in jail, and by the time she was released in October of 1971, after serving four months, Bob was ready for a divorce. Stella was not happy about being replaced and did everything she could to punish Bob. She told people that the welfare fraud was his idea and that she took the fall for him. She accused Bob of sexually abusing the girls, something that both girls would later deny. She started throwing away any gift that Bob gave her daughters and even cut off all of Leia's hair after Bob said how much he liked it. Eventually, Bob filed for custody of Leia and that's when Stella decided to get the hell out of California. In November of 1973, Stella packed up her car and drove her and her daughters to Washington State. She stayed with a relative for a few days before moving into what was said to be an apartment in Kent. Cindy would later describe the place as more of a storage building and that it was mainly only her and Leia who lived there full time. Stella lived with a man in a nearby trailer park and would stop by each morning to make sure the girls had groceries and money for school lunch. 14-year-old Cindy was the one who was taking care of Leia, feeding her and getting her ready before school. Cindy also told a story about how she climbed into a Goodwill donation box and got toys for her little sister since they didn't have any in their quote-unquote apartment. This arrangement eventually ended when Cindy ran away back to California to live with her grandmother, Cora. Stella convinced one of her sisters who lived near Seattle to take care of Leia, but it wasn't long before Bob showed up with custody papers. When the sister saw him in the doorway, she was shocked since Stella had told her that Bob was dead. Leia returned to California with Bob and Stella promised to come down and see her the following week. It would be four years before Leia would see her mother again. Bruce Nickel was born on June 1, 1934 in Seattle, Washington and was put up for adoption. He was raised by Walter and Ruth Nickel who never told him that he was adopted. Walter was an apple farmer from Winthrop, Washington and would milk a goat every morning since his new son was allergic to cow's milk. Bruce discovered the truth about the adoption when he was 16 years old and developed a strong bitterness towards his biological mother. He spent his early life floating from job to job and bar to bar. He joined the United States Marines but was discharged after going AWOL. He had married four times and had two sons but eventually had no contact with them. 
he was known to be somewhat of a loner who liked to spend his free time drinking and shooting pool. In the early 70s, Bruce's adoptive parents gave him a 13-foot trailer which he parked in a trailer park in Kent. The park was conveniently located right next to the White Spot Tavern, so Bruce was able to continue his habit of spending his evenings drinking excessively. It was at the tavern that Bruce met Stella Strong, and the two hit it off. In January of 1974, Stella knew that she wanted to marry Bruce. The only problem was that he was already married. He had married another woman only four months earlier, but that wasn't a problem because Bruce told his wife that he changed his mind and he left her. Stella and Bruce spent the next few years living it up, drinking at the taverns, going camping, and Stella basically ignored her children. On September 11, 1976, the couple got married at a chapel in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. They returned to a new 32-foot trailer at the Valley Mobile Manor in Kent. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The years of heavy drinking took a toll on Bruce, and he eventually decided he needed to stop drinking. Stella was supportive of his decision. She had never asked him to quit drinking, but she had encouraged him to slow down. They were also struggling financially, and his drinking was costing them $250 a week. Stella made some calls and found him abetted an inpatient program, but Bruce initially wouldn't commit to 27 days of inpatient treatment. He spent another two weeks drinking excessively before he finally agreed to go to treatment. The program worked, and when he was released, he had no desire to drink. The couple moved to a new trailer park in Auburn, and Bruce began working as a machinist for McDonald Industries. Leia finally came up and stayed with her mother for the summer of 1980. Things went well, and Leia eventually started school in Washington. But one night, not long after the Christmas of 1980... Leia returned from babysitting a neighbor and showed Stella a Polaroid she found in the house of a pile of marijuana. Stella decided that it was too dangerous for Leia to stay there and sent her back to California. Cindy visited her mother and stepfather from time to time, but never lived with them permanently. Their lives were turning into a regular routine and it seemed that Stella was starting to get bored. They no longer went out drinking and playing pool and Stella was becoming restless. They eventually purchased five acres of land in Auburn and moved their trailer onto it, but soon Bruce was laid off from his job and filed for unemployment. Stella began working at an Eddie Bauer factory in Kent to help make ends meet. Eventually, Cora moved into her own trailer on the property, her savings being the reason the Nichols were able to purchase the land in the first place. Stella also moved to a job at the SeaTac airport as a security screener. It was there that she told co-workers how bored she had become with her life. She told Bonnie Anderson that she and Bruce used to go out drinking and dancing. She used to get dressed up and they'd have a lot of fun, but then he quit drinking and now they never did anything. Bruce eventually went back to work when he found a job as a heavy equipment operator. On June 5th, 1986, Bruce came home from work complaining of a headache. 
He took some extra strength Excedrin, and before he could even sit down, he collapsed on the floor. Stella called the fire department and Bruce was airlifted to Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. Not long after his arrival at the trauma center, at 8.45 p.m., Bruce died. Stella didn't hesitate to authorize an autopsy, but the pathologist didn't find anything suspicious and ruled the manner of death as natural causes. They marked down the cause of death as emphysema. The next morning, Stella called Bruce's employer and informed him of the death. His boss would later say that he was surprised by her bluntness in the matter. When she told Bruce's family that he had died, they questioned the cause of death. He had recently had a physical that was required from his employer. As far as they knew, emphysema wasn't something that you suddenly died of. Despite their questions, they mourned his loss and tried to move on. Sue Snow had gotten pregnant at 16 and had a daughter named Exa. She eventually married Connie Snow and began working in the banking industry. Connie treated Exa as his own daughter and soon the couple had their own child together, another daughter named Haley. Sue's marriage to Connie began to break down, mostly due to her own infidelities, and around that time her father had a stroke. She took her daughters and moved to New Mexico to help take care of him, and when she returned to Washington a year later, her relationship with Connie only got worse. Even though it took more than eight years, Sue and Connie finally divorced, and it wasn't long before Sue was dating Paul Webking. The couple were actually introduced by Exa, who would later say it was the worst mistake she had ever made. Now it was Sue's turn to be cheated on, but this infidelity didn't seem to put a damper on their relationship because they would marry on Thanksgiving of 1985. On the morning of June 11, 1986, Sue Snow was also airlifted to Harborview Medical Center after collapsing in her bathroom. By 11 a.m., the doctors informed the family that Sue was brain dead and she was removed from life support. Since the doctors couldn't pinpoint what had caused Sue to drop dead at only 40 years old, the family agreed to an autopsy. As soon as the first incision was made, the assistant medical examiner, Janet Miller, announced that she smelled cyanide. Cyanide has the smell of bitter almonds and is said to be very distinctive. It's estimated that between 20 and 40% of the population doesn't carry the gene to be able to smell cyanide, but fortunately Janet did. Then she asked if the deceased had taken any Tylenol. In 1982, seven people in the Chicago area died after taking Tylenol capsules that had been laced with potassium cyanide. Despite an exhaustive investigation, no one has ever been arrested in connection to the crime, and by 1986, it was possible that the same person had moved to the Seattle area, or at least there could be a copycat operating in the area. The medical examiner was one of the people who couldn't smell cyanide, so she made a note in the file to check for cyanide in the toxicology report. That report would later confirm that Sue had a lethal level of cyanide in her system. The manner of death was listed as homicide. Okay, so, presents. Check. Decorations. Uh, check. Christmas clothes. Yep, check. The turkey. You forgot the turkey. Dunn Stores has extended opening hours over the Christmas season, so you'll have plenty of time to get all those little jobs done. Opening times may vary. Check your Dunn Stores app or dunnstores.com for more info. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. 
Detective Mike Dunbar was told by Sue's husband, Paul, that his wife had chronic headaches and would regularly take a couple of Excedrin in the morning. Instead of believing that someone had tampered with the medication and that Sue was targeted randomly, investigators turned their focus to Paul. He claimed to have also taken Excedrin from the same bottle and he wasn't poisoned. He also told police that Sue always bought capsules, but Sue's sister, Sarah, said that wasn't true. She claimed that Paul was the one that bought capsules, and a bottle of Excedrin found in her desk at work contained tablets. Investigators also found out that Paul had had an affair the previous year, which caused some friction in the marriage. They retrieved the bottle of Excedrin from Sue's house, and of the 60 capsules that the bottle held, 56 were remaining. Seven of the remaining capsules contained a high level of potassium cyanide. Paul was a suspect, but if the drug had been tampered with randomly, they needed to keep that under consideration. Authorities pulled bottles of Excedrin from the shelves of local stores and eventually found another bottle with poisoned capsules at Johnny's Market in Kent. Police gave a report on the news to notify the public and they released the lot number of the bottle that had been recovered from Sue's house. 5H102. The next day, Stella Nickel called the police and told them that she had a bottle of Excedrin in her home with the same lot number. She explained that her husband had mysteriously died a few days prior and she wanted police to reopen the case. When investigators arrived at her house, she gave them two bottles of Excedrin. One she said she had purchased somewhere in Auburn and the other she said she had purchased two weeks later at Johnny's Market. Tests of the bottles showed that they both contained tainted painkillers. They moved on to test a sample of Bruce's blood for cyanide and it came back positive. The manner of death on his death certificate was changed to homicide. On June 24th, another bottle of poison painkiller was found. This time it was a bottle of anison and it was found at a pay and save in Auburn, which is where it was believed that Sue purchased the tainted Excedrin she had. Out of 15,000 bottles of drugs that had been screened, only five bottles would turn up positive for cyanide, and remarkably, Stella had gotten two of them from different stores two weeks apart. It seemed unlikely. Investigators were also baffled by some tiny green crystals in the contents of the tainted capsules. None of the capsules that didn't have cyanide had green crystals. It seemed clear that they were deposited with the cyanide, but they weren't part of the poison. Those crystals also tainted the cyanide, making it impossible to trace the source. The good news, though, was that the green crystals had their own unique signature. They were made up of monuron, simazine, and atrazine. Those were all algicides, which someone would use to kill algae in a fish tank. New laws put in place after the Chicago Tylenol murders made fatal product tampering fall under the jurisdiction of the FBI. One of the agents that had interviewed Stella after she came forward with the tainted bottles of Excedrin remembered seeing a couple of fish tanks in her living room. They began searching pet supply stores looking for a product that matched what was found in the capsules with the cyanide. They found algicide tablets called Algae Destroyer that contained the same ingredients in the green crystals. They talked to the store owner, who remembered Stella. He explained to the investigators that he had told Stella to grind up the tablets before putting them in her fish tank, because that would make them work more effectively. 
Stella Nichol was now the prime suspect in the death of her own husband and possibly of Sue Snow, but detectives and federal agents couldn't understand why she came forward with the Excedrin that she herself had tampered with. If she had killed her husband, she would have gotten away with it since it was determined to be natural causes. Why come forward and have the investigation reopened? After more digging, it was discovered that Bruce had a life insurance policy that would pay out $5,000 in the event of his death. It seemed hardly enough to murder over, but when they looked closer, they realized that there was a clause in the insurance policy that would pay out an additional $100,000 in the event that Bruce's death was accidental. That surely was enough to murder over, but then the medical examiner determined that Bruce had died of natural causes and Stella wasn't going to get her 100 grand. She had to find a way to get the police to reopen the case and determine that Bruce had died of accidental poisoning. As a bonus, Stella would also get the proceeds from a civil lawsuit that her and Paul Webking had filed against Bristol Myers, the makers of Excedrin. Stella poisoned more bottles of Excedrin and put them back on store shelves. When Sue Snow died a few days later, the assistant medical examiner smelled the cyanide and gave Stella the opening she needed to have Bruce's death re-examined. The puzzle was coming together, but could investigators prove it? They had her come in for a polygraph test, which she failed, but that wasn't enough to arrest her. In January of 1987, Stella's daughter Cindy informed the police that her mother had told her that she wanted Bruce dead. Cindy said that Stella had told her that she tried to poison him before, but it didn't work. She had also talked about hiring a hitman. After that, Stella said she went to the library and started researching other methods of poisoning. With that information, authorities subpoenaed the records from the Auburn Public Library and found that she had checked out such books as Deadly Harvest and Human Poisoning from Native Plants. These books apparently got her focused on cyanide and from there, multiple C volumes of encyclopedias were found to have Stella's fingerprints on them. This entire time, Stella was fighting for her insurance payout. She had sent letters to the insurance company, including copies of the amended death certificate that showed Bruce's death was accidental. The problem was that the insurance company was investigating the claim, mainly because it was standard procedure for an accidental death claim, but also because the investigator had learned that she had become the prime suspect in the product tampering. This obviously added work to the insurance investigator's job. During this time, it was also revealed that the Nichols were far behind on their mortgage. When they were sent a final notice on April 9th of 1986, they hadn't made a mortgage payment since the previous September. Stella wrote a letter to North Pacific Bank on April 25th, 1986 that read, quote, Dear Sirs, I know that I'm tremendously overdue with my payments. There is a good reason for it. I'm having marital problems. They are about solved, and I would like to ask if you will have faith in me personally. Bruce is no longer involved, and I would like a chance for me myself to prove my worth to you. Sincerely, Stella Nichol. Her husband was dead 41 days later. On December 9, 1987, Cindy testified before a grand jury, and Stella was indicted on five counts of product tampering resulting in the deaths of Bruce Nichol and Sue Snow. She was arrested the same day. 
Stella claimed that Cindy was making the entire thing up in order to get the reward money. A group of drug companies had come together and offered a $300,000 reward for information leading to the capture of the person responsible for the product tampering. Nobody had ever been arrested in the Chicago Tylenol murders, and it led to people losing trust in over-the-counter medications. Drug makers didn't want that to happen again and were willing to pay big to make sure the perp was caught. Stella claimed that she and Bruce had bailed Cindy out financially a number of times and they expected her to pay them back. Stella claimed that Cindy was framing her in order to not have to pay back the money. That and, of course, the $300,000 reward, which would be the equivalent of over $800,000 today. Stella told her boyfriend, that's right, she was already living with a new man by the time of her arrest, that she had a ledger where she had recorded all of the money she had lent to Cindy. Her boyfriend, Fred Phelps, found the ledger and poured through it, but found no entries related to money owed to the Nichols by Cindy. What he did find were a bunch of notes that Stella had made while she had been using a Ouija board. She had asked it questions, such as when Bruce would die, if he would die by Christmas, and if her then-boyfriend would leave his wife. When Fred questioned Stella about the entries, she asked him to burn the ledger. Fred decided to end the relationship after that. When the trial began, Stella maintained her innocence, but the prosecutor explained how she had killed her husband and expected the death to be ruled a poisoning. But it was ruled natural, causing the woman to forfeit the extra $100,000 she could have gotten from Bruce's life insurance. She needed a reason to make authorities aware of the tainted Excedrin, so she put some of the tainted drug on the shelves of a couple of local stores, effectively murdering a random stranger in order to collect the insurance money. Sue Snow was a complete stranger to Stella. She was a hard-working woman who was trying to make a better life for her daughters. She wasn't a perfect person. She had some infidelities, but nothing that ever affected Stella Nickel or made her deserving of a death sentence. Stella put the entire community in danger so she could get her hands on 100 grand. The defense put all of their eggs in one basket, that Cindy was lying in order to get the $300,000 reward. It was basically a tug of war between Stella trying to get the life insurance money and Cindy trying to get reward money. But the problem was that there was other evidence in regards to Stella. The defense asked the jury to shrug off that evidence. Stella had filled out and signed Bruce's name on the insurance form, but she was the one that always filled out paperwork in that relationship. She had checked out books on poisonous plants, but that was because she had just purchased a five-acre property and she was concerned about her granddaughter playing there. She had read encyclopedias, specifically the sections about cyanide, since the books hadn't been checked out, so there was no date assigned to when her fingerprints got on them, the defense argued that Stella looked at them after Bruce's death because she was curious about how her husband had died. One thing that the defense didn't bring up in their opening was the algicide that was mixed in with the cyanide. The pet store owner testified that Stella regularly purchased algae destroyer tablets at his store and he did suggest that she grind them up before putting them in her fish tank. The defense argued that a lot of people used that product in their fish tanks, but the store owner explained that he actually had to make a special order for Stella. He had encouraged her to use a liquid algicide that they stocked, but she wanted to use the algae destroyer, so he ordered it for her. 
Basically, if the defense was to be believed, someone else who just so happened to use an algicide tablet that they crushed up had put cyanide into five bottles of painkillers. Stella was unlucky enough to happen to have purchased two of those five bottles over the course of two weeks at different stores. She conveniently stood to gain an extra 100 grand if her husband died by accidental means. Then her own daughter just happened to make up a story about her in order to get reward money. In Cindy's story, she knew that her mother had gone to the library to research poisonous plants and became interested in cyanide. How did Cindy know that Stella had done that if she hadn't told her daughter about it, just like Cindy said in her story? Stella took the stand in her own defense and denied pretty much everything that Cindy said about her. She claimed that she wasn't bored with her life with Bruce and never said that to Cindy, but that was hard to believe since she had also said it to her co-workers. When asked about the letter she sent to the bank claiming, quote, her marital problems were about to be solved, she claimed she meant their financial problems. So why didn't she say that? Why would you refer to marital problems if you meant financial problems? When asked what she meant when she said, quote, about to be solved, she claimed she meant that Bruce had taken over the finances, but she literally said in the letter, quote, Bruce is no longer involved. When she was asked about that, she claimed that she meant she was no longer listening to Bruce and she was taking back control of the finances. It made very little sense. You could either read that letter and see that it meant she expected Bruce to be out of her life soon, or you could read it and try to follow some convoluted story about how Bruce took over the finances and then she took them back and that she really meant that despite simply writing, quote, my marital problems are about to be solved, and, quote, Bruce is no longer involved. 2 plus 2 equals 4, not 723. Stella claimed that her financial situation was improving prior to Bruce's death, and that's why she was so confident in the letter to the bank. She had actually written another letter to the bank where she promised that their payments would remain current from that point on, just four days before Bruce died. When the prosecutor cross-examined Stella, she showed that their finances were anything but improving. At the time of Bruce's death, they were delinquent on multiple accounts totaling more than $8,500, and their debt was steadily increasing. Stella refused to admit that their finances were actually getting worse. The prosecutor also presented the sick leave records from Bruce's employer that showed that he had stayed home sick with what he wrote was, quote, stomach flu on dates that coincided with the times that Cindy claimed Stella had tried to poison Bruce before she was successful in June of 1986. In the prosecution's close, she said, quote, two people died because Stella Maudie Nickel, with cool, chilling deliberation, set out to eliminate them because it behooved her interest to do so. Her acts reflected a human being without social or moral conscience. A hard, icy human being who was willing to adopt a horrendous course of action as it was convenient to accomplish her purposes. She has attempted to explain away all of her words and conduct, just as she has attempted to explain away every shred of physical evidence in this case presented against her. But she attempts to deny and she attempts to explain away too much. Stella Nickel attempts to escape accountability for decisions which she made which had irrevocable consequences to Sue Snow and Bruce Nickel. During the jury's deliberation, one juror was called at home in the evening and claimed the caller said, quote, don't you all know that she failed the lie detector test? And then hung up. 
After being questioned by the judge who told her lie detector results were inadmissible in court, the juror promised that she could ignore the call and remain impartial. It was then revealed that the same juror had received a settlement from food maker Pepperidge Farms after biting into a goldfish cracker and finding a pill inside. In her testimony for that case, she said she panicked because it happened right after the poisonings in Auburn. The pill ended up being a single ibuprofen, and an investigation revealed that it had accidentally gotten into the goldfish cracker during manufacturing. The juror was awarded $500 and an out-of-court settlement. She said that she never thought it was connected to the nickel case and believed it wasn't important enough to be brought up at jury selection. The defense moved for a mistrial, but the judge denied the request and the jury continued deliberating. The jury ended up finding Stella Nickel guilty on all charges, and she was sentenced to two terms of 90 years in prison for the deaths of Bruce Nickel and Sue Snow, and three terms of 10 years for the product tampering. The sentences were all to be served concurrently. She was eligible for parole in 2017, but was denied. If she's not granted parole, her release date is set for 2040, when she'll be 96 years old. Stella Nickel wanted her husband out of the way so she could get life insurance money and move on with one of her boyfriends. When things didn't go as planned, she murdered a complete stranger as a means of financial gain. She had a complete disregard for human life, which is the first sign that someone is a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Okay, so, presents. Check. Decorations. Uh, check. Christmas clothes. Yep, check. The turkey. You forgot the turkey. Dunn Stores has extended opening hours over the Christmas season, so you'll have plenty of time to get all those little jobs done. Opening times may vary. Check your Dunn Stores app or dunnstores.com for more info. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone.